I love understanding someone else's perspective. I've traveled extensively in my life. I'm always excited to go to a new culture and fall into it and figure out how are the people that I'm meeting different from me and where do we overlap? And I find that that exploration is so rich. And you have that every time you pick up a good book, you enter someone else's mind, you see the world through their lens. And that's deeply exciting for me. I also think it allows for empathy and empathy and kindness are the core components of a successful civilization. Hey there, welcome to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career. Thank you so much for joining me for these meaningful conversations with literary agents, where we talk about their manuscript wishlist, how they agent, and many other invaluable publishing insights. I'm Abigail Perry, the host of Lit Match and a certified developmental editor who has also worked as an editorial intern at a literary agency. I'm always on the hunt for noteworthy literary agents who are making big differences in the world by advocating for authors and making their publishing dreams come true. It was a tremendous honor interviewing this next guest. Her intelligence, her vision for what publishing and stories can be, and her honest, empathetic support of writers and creators and the work that they bring into the publishing world is astounding. She's been a literary agent for over 20 years and in this time has made a long client list of visionary, culturally sensitive academics, journalists, and public intellectuals. Her name is Tanya McKinnon, and the interview I have today mesmerized me, educated me, and challenged challenged me to really reflect on our shared value of why we believe stories have this incredible role in making people and the world better. Tanya McKinnon is the principal literary agent and founder of McKinnon Literary Agency. She represents serious nonfiction, literary fiction, children's books, and graphic novels, and since establishing the agency in 2014, has seen the publication of numerous New York Times bestsellers, as well as numerous award winners and commercial successes. Tanya looks for books where writers confront the chaos of reality and distill it into narratives that leave readers wiser and more human for having read them. Tanya has worked various roles in publishing, including time as an editor, which deepened her love of accessible, idea-driven nonfiction with the power to transform culture. Her various sides of the industry have led her to view the agent-author relationship holistically, and she routinely helps her clients shape and sharpen their projects through a rigorous in-house editorial process. Tanya is always looking for work that takes her beyond the boundaries of where she currently is, including categories such as history, sociology, psychology, anthropology, medicine, cultural criticism, popular culture, journalism, and sheer whimsy. For fiction, Tanya looks for literary, story, and character-driven work with a strong voice. She has a particular interest in multicultural and African-American work and a passion for graphic novels, be they for adults or young readers. In children's books, she represents picture books through chapter books and middle-grade readers to young adults. Tanya has an MA in cultural anthropology and teaches a course on writing for children in the publishing certificate program at City College. With great love in my heart, I am honored to share today's conversation with Tanya with you today. Thank you so much, Tanya, for joining me today. I can't wait to talk to you about your manuscript wish list and the wonderful work that you are helping shepherd into this world. I read your bio and immediately felt an instant connection and calling to what you were trying to do. 
especially how you're looking for stories that help us sort through the chaos of the world and help us to become these people who can address this chaos. I'm really genuinely excited to have you here with us. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. Before we get into the podcast, why don't we talk about your experiences as a literary agent? When I graduated from college, I actually became the youngest member of a progressive press collective, and I was an editor. And I got to work with some impressive intellectuals. It was back in the very late 80s, early 90s. And I just loved being part of that process of helping books get born into the world. I got a bug for it. And I remember that they hired me because they were asking people they were interviewing for a wish list of books that they wanted to see in the world. My wish list was a page long. And they're like, normally people were like two or three books, but you had like 18. <laughs> I, I think what it reflected was the sort of diversity of my interests and my passion for both politics and literature. <laughs> I worked there and I really enjoyed my time as an editor and I learned a lot about how a book needs to hang together. Then I actually went back to graduate school and I realized after the MA that I didn't want to pursue a PhD. At that point, I moved to New York and I went back into publishing. And I had an incredible opportunity to work at a scouting house, which represented European publishers and Hollywood producers. We kept them abreast every day on what was selling in New York. That was the best possible education I could have had for how commercial publishing works, because I got to look at it top down and see all the moving parts. I did that for a while. It's a high burnout job because you're reading like a manuscript a day and reporting on it to your clients. I really got to know a lot of literary agents because I would cover both publishing houses and literary agents we divvied up. And I just thought it was so exciting that the literary agents were really there from the beginning, helping conceptualize a book and then helping bringing it to market. And then I loved the good literary agents that I observed. They were really matchmakers. Yes, there's this idea of you go to market and you take the highest price. And in theory, I love that idea. And sometimes it works that way. But I think when you're really doing the job well, you're really thinking about the right editor for your client, for their temperament and for their skill set and for the topic. Because advances are great, but the real win is when a book does well. So if you can get a good advance and the right editor in the right house, and then the book goes on to really hit, that's a very, very exciting trajectory and ride to be on. Then I eventually left scouting and got an entry-level position at an agency. And I was very fortunate in that I worked for a, a progressive-minded woman. I think it's important that she was a woman and that she didn't put a ceiling on my ability to achieve. I was there three months and I sold my first book for a quarter of a million dollars, which was a friend of mine who'd gone to Columbia Journalism School. And she kept saying, I'm going to go to journalism school and you're going to sell my book. And I was like, yes, that's our plan. And we did it. And it was exciting. And then the woman I worked for said, maybe you really have a knack for this. And in the, within a couple of months, we'd hired a new assistant and, and I was really agenting. And I haven't stopped since. Brief hiatus when I had my child, I pulled back. And then I left my old agency. And when I came back from a, a longer maternity leave than most people take, it was about six years. When I came back from that, my husband said to me, I think you should consider opening your own agency. And I was frightened. I think we always have these stories of people like, I knew from the minute I was born what I was going to do. And I'm not sure that that's the case for all of us. I don't think it was for me. 
I think for me, it was a process of exploration and coming into myself as someone who felt ready to do certain things. And so when my husband said that, I said, oh, I don't know. There's all the backroom work. There's sort of the sexy image of agenting. Oh, you're talking to authors and you're selling books. And that's one part, but there's this whole other part that is the managing of someone's career that has a lot to do with business and databases. And, you know, I think at first I was a little nervous about how I would put an effective backroom together. And my husband, I really give him a lot of credit. He was very supportive, but it's important to have a supportive partner in your life. He really said, I think if you just start, you'll sort it out just the way motherhood happened. You'll just begin and you'll problem solve every time something happens. And that is what I ended up doing. I said, I'm going to open my door and I don't care if I make any money <laughs> and we are not wealthy. So I'm not saying that in some kind of pine sky way, but I said, I'm really just going to be committed to representing what I read. And I'm not going to think about the bottom line more than I think about what I love personally to read, which is serious nonfiction most of the time. And so I began and I'm going to sound like a cliche, but do what you love and the money will follow. It was in fact the intentionality of my vision that really began to bring certain kinds of authors to me with a rapidity that startled even me. I was able to build fairly quickly. And now I have a group of five wonderful people that I work with and a contracts manager and an entertainment attorney and a speaker's brief. All those pieces have fallen into place in a wonderful way. And now we have a very robust full service agency. I would say it was also good the time I took off to be with my daughter. It made me a better mom. And I think being a better mom made me a better businesswoman. Yep. I have a toddler now. It just changes everything. It helps you figure out priorities. It helps you understand time management and be able to also, I think, real about technician of what you love and your passions. You said serious nonfiction is the majority of what you are representing. I know that you also represent some literary works you do, and you do children's books and graphic novels. Yeah. I'm curious how you became selective to those four choices. What did you feel you connected with the most in each of those? And how do you look at them differently when representing them and shepherding them into the world? It, it goes right back to what you were saying, that I really gravitated to what I personally loved. I was a new mom and I'd done some children's books before I was a mom, after I became a mom. I had this really new vantage point on children's books, which is how do children receive them? What makes a great picture book? And every spring I teach this course on children's publishing at City College, which I've done for many, many years. And I loved being a mom also just altered all of that. I love children's books. They seem easy. People don't always accord them the respect that they deserve. They're very difficult to write. Connecting with children requires so many gifts operating at the same time on the page. Sometimes the form that is least respected by people who are not in children's books is the picture book, but it's by far the hardest form because you're actually writing a novel in a 16-page spread, double-page spread. And then a good picture book brings a child to literature. It brings us alive to the joy of reading in the earliest stages of our lives. So all of my sort of intellectual and artistic passions found expression in children's books, the art, the words. So I began becoming more serious. I recently hired a, a creative director for children's books who is himself an accomplished children's book writer. And to further develop our list, that's why I love children's books and what I bring to that. 
And then when I do read fiction, it's primarily literary fiction. Again, because literary fiction is engaged in the world of ideas, which is what I love. When you read a beautiful novel, you're taken out of yourself. And unlike a more plot-driven novel, perhaps, that sort of keeps you on the surface of the events, a literary novel allows you that space to drop down and reflect on who you are politically and spiritually and intellectually and communally, right? It does that in the vehicle of a story, which interestingly enough, is not that different from nonfiction. I think from good upmarket literary nonfiction, it has more in common with fiction than sometimes people imagine because the really gifted nonfiction writers, they're also storytellers. They just happen to be telling a story about the truth. With the really good writers, you'll see that they are often actually using tools from the fiction writer's toolkit to tell true stories about ideas. If you look at a big bestseller, I didn't represent it, but it, it's, it's a slightly older book, but I always use it as a kind of example of something that does things very right. Shock Doctrine, which could have been a very uninteresting book about economics, but instead became a New York Times bestseller because she turned economic theory into people and into narrative. And that's really compelling when you're on the page and it makes you want to learn. I love it when I pick up a book and I become engrossed then I'm smarter when I put it down. I could not agree with you more. I think that when you can read a really great nonfiction book, you might be intimidated almost when you go to purchase it, but it's communicated to you in a way that we can digest, reflect, and move forward as a better human being because we have this new perspective. And it seems like you're also saying that that's parallel with children's literature and children's books, and that this is really their first introduction to literature. This is their opportunity to start thinking outside and within themselves through art, through text. And I agree with you. I think that many people will say, oh, I can write a children's book. I was looking at a couple of books that came out, Dad Bakes. I was so excited because being a mom, you find a lot of books that are about moms and their babies and not so much about dads. And yeah. fathers and their children. And that's important. Another one that I thought was really standing out to me was the me I choose to be. Oh, yeah. And I will include all of these and links to where you can buy those books and hopefully buy them from a local bookstore. Not just yes. That <laughs> in the show notes. But buy from an indie. <laughs> the me I choose to be, that title alone, that spoke to a message that I would want to be teaching my own child. I loved what you said about how one is about telling the truth and then one is about fiction, but we're still exploring truths within ourselves. Do you find that when you're representing nonfiction and literary, that there are similar messages or themes or questions? I've had a really good conversation with an author and she said, it's not about writing a message about answering a question. I really am always trying to better understand human motivation. I want to understand why I do things and why things are happening in the world. And I love understanding someone else's perspective. I've traveled extensively in my life. I'm always excited to go to a new culture and fall into it and figure out how are the people that I'm meeting different from me and where do we overlap? And I find that that exploration is so rich. And you have that every time you pick up a good book, you enter someone else's mind, you see the world through their lens. And that's deeply exciting for me. I also think it allows for empathy. and. Empathy and kindness are the core components of a successful civilization. 
if you don't come to the world with that essential curiosity about who are you, we might not look the same. We might not have grown up in the same neighborhood or the same state or the same country, but there are inevitably going to be intersections where we are the same through our differences. And when we can't get to that, I think that's when we're in great jeopardy as a people. I'm a humanist and I am drawn to literature, to works of nonfiction that really help us think about who we are, why we do the things we do, why harm occurs, how we mend fences with one another, how we become more empathic, how we better learn to sit with the viewpoint that is not our own. And not that we sit as dupes while someone else doesn't hear us, but where we return to a place where, where conversation and ex the exchange of ideas can actually have the power to change minds. A good writer has a certain level of persuasive power, and that power can change your mind. And to me, that's an incredible thing about being human. I love how the stories that you're representing are helping us change our mind in a way that we also are really deeply reflecting on what you said, why we start to put barriers between ourselves or around ourselves. Do you find that it's easy for us to get trapped in our own mindset and then these books are a way for us to see something else? In the last five years, I've been increasingly alarmed day by day by the ease with which we can sit without curiosity in our own bubbles. It's frightening to me. And the more we sit in those bubbles, the less interested we are in actually communicating in a way that breaks through those bubbles. We end up in sound chambers like that we're talking to the people who already think like us. So you're not really changing anyone's mind. I think social media, sadly, has made that easier rather than more difficult. I think we're paying a huge price right now as a culture because of it. Do you think part of that might be because people or mistaking confrontation with arguments. Like you don't have to always agree with someone, but it's important to listen and reflect. But also, how do you know yourself absent of debate? Right. A nonviolent engagement. Debate means you meet in the arena of ideas and you see, does my idea stand up? Yes. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe someone is saying something that has a more complicated and deeper robustness, a more nuanced understanding. And maybe I should change. People feel that changing is a sign of weakness. Yes. I'm so frightened of the way people think that kindness now is a sign of weakness. There's just so much emphasis on clapping back, on taking people down. And that's actually easier than being empathic, than being compassionate with yourself and therefore other people. And, you know, and I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna, but I really don't enjoy living in a gotcha world. My husband, who I like, sometimes if I do something and he doesn't agree, he's like, I didn't agree with what you did for A, B, C, and D, E, F, G reasons. And sometimes I'm like, what? You know nothing, Jon Snow. But then I sit with it and then sometimes I come back to him and I say, you know, you were right. That, I, that wasn't operating from the best of myself. Thank you for loving me in such a way that you would demand that I hold myself to the standards that you know I want to hold myself to. But that's the root of compromise, the root of 
being human together and being able to weep in together for 25 years. We understand that being together means changing together and you can't do that. I'm using the example of a marriage, but all relationships are like a marriage. Even our relationship with one another as citizens, we're married together in this country, right? If we just have hate and we don't have empathy, I don't really know how we can continue to coexist. I'm profoundly concerned about the changes to the Second Amendment, where we might find ourselves in 50 open carry states. Jonathan Metzl, a very important scholar, has been writing about this right now. He's also newly a client. This real change, how comfortable and safe people feel expressing their viewpoints on both sides of the political spectrum. That's scary. You know, but all of this, I think, is, we've got a little bit of field from books, but not really because books are foundational to how we grapple with and understand these issues for ourselves. And for a significant amount of time, to read a book, you have to sit and invest time. I think that, especially with social media, so many people are so quick to jump back at someone that we don't sit and listen as much. But when you're sitting there with the book, your job is to listen. Is there anything that you felt has really done an excellent job at doing exactly what you have just taught us about helping us be empathetic, about helping us reflect and really address these concerns that you've shared. A book that just came out by one of my clients named Farrah Jasmine Griffin is called Read Until You Understand, an editor's pick in the New York Times. It's gotten rave reviews everywhere. And she really talks about how she's a professor at Columbia University. And every year she teaches, sort of, you know, a survey of African-American literature. And the book is her class made accessible in book form with her beautiful, gorgeous prose and, and a kind of memoir backbone of her own life as a reader. And, you know, she shows us how how, how her students' lives are transformed in her survey class because they begin to look at America differently through the lens of African-American literature. And it's not that America narrows, is that America expands and they can think about things like grace. They can think about their own politics. They can think about what it means to be a citizen in this country. And all of that is opened up to them through literature. And she shares those experiences in the book. And so many readers have already said that it was such a powerful experience to be able to, in a sense, take a class that's only accessible to a very few people in the world, to be able to sort of to glean from her experience teaching that, to share in the richness of that experience with her through the book that they have. That's also a safe private space. You can have all the thoughts you want. You can tussle with the book in your mind. My husband makes fun of me. He's like, yeah, you can always tell when you've been at a book, it's like dog-eared and underlined and you scribbled in the margin because I'm one of those people that loves a book up like a loaf of bread. But a book is a marvelous place to do that kind of work. Yeah, I did see Hibbern X. Kendi who was talking about this same book. What a better endorsement can you guess? Yes. Max Kendi was genius and so good at communicating big ideas. Also a deeply kind and lovely person. Yes. It makes his success all the more wonderful. When I'm picking up non-fiction literary books, I want to learn 
how to challenge myself to be more the empath with your manuscript wish list and like to focus on what speaks to the American ideas. What are some big ideas that you like? And when you're working with an author, do you help coach them through communicating these ideas? Yes, absolutely. I love books about the American experience, all kinds of books. And I also find that we're still doing the work of understanding the degree to which women of all races are central to the American story and that our story as women is central to how we understand the country. You know, we're still not at parity in terms of literature of women to men. I think sometimes young people, they're still realizing that feminism didn't just work. You know what I mean? We're not at 100%, sadly. Women are still struggling to make our voices and our perspectives heard. When I work with clients, I like to get in early if I can, when they come to me with an idea. I worked with this one man. He was actually at Columbia Journalism School also. And he came to me with seven pages. And I saw in those seven pages something special. And I said, I want to work with you. Let's develop this. And we worked pretty nonstop and very intensively. That means sometimes on weekends, we would be on the phone. We worked on the proposal and it went from seven pages. I think the final proposal was over 35 pages. And, you know, we sold it on preempt very quickly for a good amount of money. It was helping him to take what was an important but smallly realized idea. The idea wasn't big enough yet. And allowing him in the process of revision to see that he was actually telling a much bigger story with much larger stakes. I'm that sounding board and that editorial bully and that coach that's sort of pushing my author to render on the page the idea in the most compelling, but also what we call in publishing in the biggest way possible. That is a process that can take three weeks, three months, three years. I worked with one client for four years on her proposal, meaning we were working on the maturation of the idea in her. In the time that we were working together, she became a contributor for the New York Times. You know, things kept growing and she grew into the bigness of her own idea, which she was still a little bit unripe for when she began. And then when we finally went to market, it was a wonderful explosive sale. It was my job to know that the potential was there and to stick with her. I think that sometimes authors just really need that person in their corner who believes, but not a passive belief. In my case, it's a very active belief, meaning I'm frequently not satisfied. And I know my clients sometimes want to throttle me when they hand me a proposal and they've just, you know, poured their heart out. And I'm like, this is great. We're almost there. And then they're like, almost, almost. Are you kidding? This is the fourth draft. But, you know, when we go to market, they don't regret it because going to market with strong material, there's no substitute for that because then publishers really know what they have and they can get excited. And the proposal honors what the book will be. And editors, they're not dumb. They know when they're holding something true. Mm -hmm. And that reinforces that idea of digging deep. One thing that I love that if I'm hearing this correctly, like you look for active ideas, mm -hmm. but it sounds like when writers submit to you, sometimes, probably often, these ideas aren't fully flushed out and you are someone who is willing to dig deep with them and mm -hmm. help them expand this idea into something that, because there's so much passion attached to it, can make that groundworking experience and connection to other writers. Back to that 
what you said in the beginning of the podcast episode that you focus not so much on the advances, although advances are nice, but the idea here that what are you trying to do with this book? Can we connect? most readers. I want to be clear. I'm extremely aggressive in the marketplace, meaning I demand top dollar for my projects. But before I can get to top dollar, I have to have a top proposal. So that's where I say I am intentional at every stage. The first stage is that we come together and we have a strong rapport and a good working relationship. And then we dig in together and we craft the most powerful, effective proposal that we can. Then I take the baton away from the writer and we go to market, right? And I do my job of selling. I have to be a really impassioned, effective spokesperson for the project and someone who is selling the project effectively, but not in a hucksterish way, but in a way that comes from my own belief. Editors can tell when you call them up and you're like, you know, hi, John, I have something I'm so excited about, you know, and it's not a very big industry. We know one another. And if you, if you have a track record of, of sending things to market that people respect, when you call them and you say, I have something special, they listen to you. And that's important. It's important to have an agent who editors believe when they come to them with something. I'm managing it every time. All of those relationships, my relationship with the house, my relationship with the editors, my relationship with the clients. One of the great things about my list is that I represent a number of thought leaders. And one of the things that's very common for me to do is that before I edit a client, I might have to do a whole day's worth of background reading so that I make sure that I really understand the issue, that I'm actually capable of speaking intelligently to my client about their book. I mean, these are all important things. I'm not a postdoc. Work comes in, work come, goes out. That's not my model. That's why I actually feel so drawn to you personally. It's because you are passionate about these projects and you're going to fight for the ones that you know demand that attention. You have a wealth of experience. With these editor connections, you talked about it being a small industry. Do you find that those connections with your editors tend to be consistent with the same editors? Did it take a while to build those relationships with editors? Like any other relationship, you're together for a while. Some editors I've known 20 years and speaking to them feels like talking in some ways to an old friend. Then there are always new editors coming onto the scene and they're exciting because they're young and they have new perspectives and different kinds of interests. In part, your list speaks for you. And then in publishing the way that we generally used to come together is over lunch. Editors and agents have lunches. It used to be in the old days, people would make sort of, but the reason that we meet over lunch is that it's a more intimate space and we can really talk about ideas and books and get to know one another's taste and life history. Let's say I had an important book. I'm making this up now, but let's say I had an important book about adoption and I might go, oh, ping person X, Y at Hachette. I remember that at lunch. She told me she was adopted. She might be someone I want to start with there and see if she's interested in books about adoption. There are little details. Every house has a number of editors and they each have their own specialty. So when you get to know them, you kind of have a sense of, you know, this person likes this kind of a feel and a proposal. This person gravitates more towards that. That's also what you're going to an agent for for them to match make you with the right editor. And agents play such an invaluable role in so many ways. But I think also with this idea of the literary agent and helping the writer make those connections that allows them to keep producing really great work and then they can take care of you. They're going to help you find that match because much like I'm hoping this podcast can do, finding the right match with the literary agent, it's essential to 
what's going to challenge you not only as a writer, but as an individual human being, and it's going to determine maybe the trajectory of your career on how you start to grow, which is it's just so key. So at the end of every podcast, I do like to do a lightning round of three questions. And ideally, you'll be able to answer these questions in one sentence. So if you expand, don't worry about it. But if you can't answer them in one sentence, that's great. If you're ready, we'll dive right into that. Question number one is, what is it like working as the principal of McKinnon Literary Agent in addition to representing your own writers? Do you find that navigating those rules is different or similar? It's like getting to take a master class every day in different topics that you are endlessly fascinated by. At the same time that you have to put on a very clear business hat and attend to managing the people that you work with, and looking at spreadsheets and understanding the business end of it, both all the time. It's a great perspective. Question number two, who is your ideal client? In other words, who would you see as someone who has a unified vision and rapport with you? And how do they hook your attention? I love a client that has a strong voice and a really defined point of view. Also happens to be a beautiful writer and thinker who's endlessly curious and almost inexhaustible in the degree to which they want to engage the world. I love an author who is a career author, someone who has more than one book in love and who is constantly in a state of learning and who you don't entirely know what their next project will be, but you know that you'll want to take the trip with them. That's an amazing answer. I want to read all of your clients' books now because of that answer and for other reasons, but also because of that. And then my third and final question for you would be, what are you reading right now and why do you love it? I represent a, a very significant scholar named Hortense Spillers, and she recommended a book called The Racecraft. And I've been making my way, it's a nonfiction book, it's somewhat academic, I've been making, making my way through it slowly, but it's been blowing my mind in terms of the depth of their understanding of racial dynamics in this country. And it's, it's things that I've already known, but shown to me again, there was slightly different perspective. It's the kind of reading that I enjoy most. I can't do it quickly. I can't gobble it down. I actually can only read about 15 pages of it at a time because the ideas are so rich. That's amazing when you get topics that you know so much about, but then start to see it in a different way. That really is a bonus question because I did remember what I wanted to ask you. You focus a lot on helping academic writers move into the trade publishing world. When you're working with academic writers, is it usually someone that you seek out or do they usually submit to you or is it a little bit of both? It's both. Sometimes I see someone's work and I'm captivated by it and I reach out to them or you represent it. And I get referrals from my wonderful, my existing clients who refer me to other wonderful thinkers. So it's both. Do you find that that is the majority of the nonfiction that you're working with, this academic moving to trade publishing? Or I also represent journalists and, you know, and just career writers. Yeah. I represent across the nonfiction spectrum. And do you think that the type of writing, the way it's structured with the prose and the voice, because that sounds like such an, a, a moving part of the stories that you're drawn to, do you find that the academic writers that you write with have a strong voice already and that transition between academic writing and trade book publishing 
is a difficult transition or does it usually come about naturally with the writers that you write with? It's, it's very individual. I had one writer who was giving me very dry prose and I was like, your ideas are fabulous, but this prose is terrible. <laughs> and I, you know, I just, it's just, it, it's not pleasurable to read. And he said, okay, let me try something else. And he went back and he gave me these pages and I'm like, what happened? Who wrote this? Where did this come from? And he's like, you know, I didn't tell you, but I got an MFA before I got my PhD. I said, what? He's like, yeah, but the PhD beat that MFA writing right out of me, but it seems like you want it back. And it was just such a classic example of sort of the bad writing habits that the academy can kind of ingrain in people. And when he was able to shed that more restrictive coat of academic writing, he started generating this incredibly lush, beautifully story-driven idea book. It was wonderful. It's like with academics, sometimes they just have to be given a different model and permission to write in a warmer or a hotter way because the academy wants distance and sort of coolness and a little bit less passion. And for trade, we want those ideas to be carried in a slightly hotter, more intense way. Oh, that perfectly said. Well, Tanya, thank you so much for speaking to me today and for spending time with our listeners. It's just such a wonderful opportunity. You have so many great things to say, and I can't wait for more writers to hear this and say, yep, she's for me and for you to connect. Thank you so much for interviewing me. And I want to say to all the aspiring writers who are listening to your podcast, that writing is something that you learn and not something that you're born with. Everyone can become a writer. And the great boon to being a writer is that it always involves knowing yourself better. So I wish you much joy and luck on your journey of self-discovery. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation on Lit Match. You can find Tanya's full manuscript wishlist and the books discussed in this episode in the show notes. If you liked listening to my conversation with Tanya and would like to hear more episodes with literary agents, please make sure to pass the show on and write a review. This helps me reach more writers like you who are ready to query, who are curious about how to research literary agents, or who want to go deep into their writing craft. If you have any questions or recommendations for LitMatch, I'd love to hear from you. Please email me at abigailkperry at gmail.com, and I'll do my absolute best to answer you. I hope you'll join me for next week's show. In the meantime, keep writing. I genuinely can't wait to hear when you sign with a literary agent who is the best match for your business and writing career and celebrate your book when it comes out.